I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. Today, we predict the conversion from ocular hypertension to glaucoma. We looked at the risk factors that were identified by the old, and based on that, we developed the predictive model that we could apply to estimate the global risk for a particular patient. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Felipe Medeiros declares research support from Pfizer. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. The Ocular Hypertension Treatment Study, or OATS, is a seminal study in the management of ocular hypertension. It brought to the fore the importance of pachymetry, but OATS investigated more parameters than just corneal thickness. Felipe Medeiros of UCSD has created a set of predictive models, a formulae, based on the risk factors identified from OATS to assign a glaucoma conversion risk score for individual patients. He's also produced a simplified version applicable to office practice. I'm happy to have Dr. Medeiros as my guest today. Since we're going to be talking about the OATS study and the DIG study, can I have you summarize just briefly the OATS study? The OATS study, the Ocular Hypertension Treatment Study, was a uh, multicenter prospective study that looked at if reduction of intraocular pressure by topical medications would prevent the development of glaucoma in patients with ocular hypertension. So basically, they studied randomized over 1,600 patients with ocular hypertension to treatment versus no treatment. And then it looked at the effect of treatment, if it could uh, prevent the development of glaucoma in the patients that were treated. And in one of the analyses of this, uh, of the OATS, was to look at the risk factors that were associated with conversion to glaucoma in patients with ocular hypertension. So they followed the patients for approximately uh, five years, and it was the average follow-up time. And then from the 1,600 patients in the group uh, that was left without treatment, 9.5% converted to glaucoma in five years, whereas for the patients that were treated, 4.4% converted to glaucoma. So they showed a beneficial uh, uh, effect of treatment in preventing the development of glaucoma. And they also uh, found a series of risk factors that were associated with the development of glaucoma in this study. We're also going to be dealing with data from the DIGS study. Can you tell me what DIGS is? Okay, so DIGS uh, stands for Diagnostic Innovations in Glaucoma Study. Uh, NIH-sponsored uh, study that is currently ongoing here and at the University of California, San Diego. And this study started in early 90s. And the purpose of this study is to, it's a longitudinal study, 
and we have uh, over 2,000 patients that are being followed over time, and that includes normal patients, glaucoma suspects, and also patients with uh, a diagnosis of glaucoma. They are followed over time. So this has, uh, the study has several purposes. Uh, it's to evaluate new methods for diagnosis and follow-up of glaucoma, as well as to identify risk factors for uh, development and progression of the disease. What are the risk factors that were identified by the OATS study? Okay, so the OATS looked the, the, they looked at approximately 20 risk factors. Their final analysis identified six risk factors that were significantly associated with development of glaucoma. There were age, so older patients had a higher risk, uh, intraocular pressure, so patients with higher intraocular pressure also had a higher risk, uh, central corneal thickness, that patients with thin corneas had a higher chance of developing glaucoma, uh, larger values of the vertical cup disc ratio measurement, which is a measurement of the up nerve in the back of the eye, and a visual field index called the pattern standard deviation, so that higher values of this visual field index were associated with development of glaucoma. And diabetes was identified as a, a protective factor. As a protective yeah, factor? Yeah, it was identified as a protective factor in the study, which was a... a somewhat surprising result, actually. With regard to this current paper, can, can I have you describe the design of the study? So basically, we had two purposes. So the first one was to develop predictive models for the risk of conversion from ocular hypertension to glaucoma. And this was done based on the results of the old study. So we looked at the results of the old study in terms of the risk factors that were identified by the old. And based on that, we developed the predictive model that you could apply to estimate the global risk for a particular patient. So you take into account all the six factors that I just described, and then you combine them in a formula to get a final risk for a particular patient with ocular hypertension. But then one of the fundamental things when you develop a predictive model is to validate it. So that was the second purpose of the study, was to validate these predictive models in an independent population of patients with ocular hypertension. And then we selected the patients uh, with ocular hypertension from the DIGS study. What you've done here is, is that you've taken the uh, data from the, from the OATS study, you've created a, a predictive model mm -hmm, exactly. um, from, from that data. You've then applied this model to the hypertensive kind of subgroup from the DIGS population exactly. to demonstrate that your predictive model works and that's your the, the the initial OATS data was used to create the predictive model mm -hmm. the second set of data the uh, DIGS data was used to to validate it exactly what were the data gathered in the DIGS study and did, did it differ from the data that was gathered in in OATS right so actually uh we have in the paper a comparison between the two uh, populations, the, the OATS and the DIGS, and they were actually similar. We used in, the, in this paper to select the patients from the DIGS study, we used uh, the same inclusion and exclusion criteria from the OATS because the purpose was to validate the model in a similar population than the one that was used to develop it. So actually, in, in the paper, we have a comparison between these two populations, and they had similar age and a gender distribution, 
and also uh, a similar proportion of patients with potential risk factors such as diabetes. Uh, one of the differences was that the OATS had a higher proportion of African-American patients than the DIGS. Like the OATS had 25% of African-Americans, uh, whereas we had only 3% of our subjects that were African-American. So that was one of the differences between the study. Overall, there were similar populations because we used a similar inclusion and exclusion criteria. The key outcome measure here was the conversion from ocular hypertension to glaucoma. How did you determine when a patient converted to glaucoma? Right. So uh, this was determined by looking at the visual fields. If the patient developed, they confirmed visual field defect over time. And by confirmed, I mean three repeatable uh, fields with uh, uh, visual field defect over time or by the development of a progressive uh, op nerve damage. So we reviewed photographs of the op nerve over time, and we compared these photographs over time, and then we assessed the photographs for progression. So if the patient developed a visual field defect or a progression of op nerve damage, or both, then uh, he was considered uh, as developing glaucoma in this study. In the context of this paper, you created two mathematical models and, and then one point-based model that, that, that we, will, we will deal with later. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between your full predictive model and your reduced predictive model? Right. So the main difference is that the full model contains the vertical cup-disc ratio variable and the pattern standard deviation index. So the vertical cup-disc ratio is a measure of the up nerve and the PSD, the pattern standard deviation of the visual fields. The point about the full versus the reduced model is that the, the vertical cup disc ratio, instead of a risk factor, it may be more properly uh, considered as a predictive factor. And what, what's the difference there is that actually patients with larger values of vertical cup disc ratio may actually be considered as having early disease so the vertical cup disc ratio would be uh, actually an indicator of early disease instead of a risk factor. One of the points that, that you make in the paper is, is that the reduced model is r reduced only in the sense that, that it leaves out two variables, and those variables are different from everything else because exactly. in, in addition to you know being viewed in your full model, in a sense, as, as risk factors, they're, they're in fact two of the criteria used to establish the diagnosis exactly. uh, in, the, in the first place. So, I mm -hmm. mean, and, and a variable really can't serve both, both purposes. I mean, it can't, you know, both be something that predicts a pathology and then is used to define the pathology. Exactly. So, the, 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 the vertical cup disc ratio and PSD actually are more uh, uh, properly uh, uh, predictors that can help you detect uh, patients with early disease. And that's why we actually looked at the full model that incorporates these vectors. But uh, strictly, they cannot really be uh, termed risk factors. Uh, like uh, this is a distinction that epidemiologists like to, to make. Like So strictly speaking, uh, uh, vertical cup disc ratio or PSD are not really risk factors. But their incorporation in the predictive model can help identify the patients that have the disease or that converted to glaucoma. So that's why they were uh, incorporated in the model. So they, they actually demonstrated to be helpful. 
And the second variable that was left out was the pattern standard deviation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Plus, you you make the uh, point that an additional benefit of of leaving these variables out is is that that it makes it simpler to apply the formula in order to generate what the prediction is then for someone to to convert. The Diggs population was your verification population. Exactly. When you performed your verification series using the Diggs population, how well did your predictive model do? So the, the predictive models performed well in the Diggs population, so we assessed that several different ways. And one way was uh, what we call a discrimination. And by discrimination, uh, uh, we mean that how the model was able to uh, differentiate the patients who converted from the patients who did not convert. And what we found is that uh, the model gave a higher risk to the patients who actually converted during the follow-up time than to the patients that did not convert. So uh, in 73% of the cases, the model assigned a higher risk to, the, to a patient that converted to, compared to a patient who did not convert. And we also uh, looked at the calibration, which is how uh, the predicted probabilities of conversion agree with the observed probabilities. And that's uh, illustrated by the calibration plots, where you see what was predicted by the model, how that agrees with what was observed in the, in the populations, uh, of, uh, in the patients followed over time. So we can see that there was a, a good agreement between what was predicted and what was uh, observed. If I understand right, in, in applying your model, which was derived from the uh, OATS data to the DIGS population, you introduced this, this calibration factor. And what the, what the calibration factor, as, as I understand it, describes is kind of the difference between the, the two populations. It's a, it's a multiple that, that you use on your predictive model. Does no. that sound right? No, actually, this is something that you can do, but I did not do in my, in my uh, study, in this study. So the prevalence of risk factors is somewhat different between the populations, right? When you have a, 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 a predictive model, it takes into account this prevalence of risk factors. So sometimes when you apply to another population, although the model can discriminate well, its calibration is not very good. So you can introduce a calibration factor so you can recalibrate the model to make it better in that sense. This is something that I did not try to do in this study because the calibration was already sufficiently good. So I didn't try to recalibrate the models, as you, your question actually uh, was trying to imply. So I did not really uh, try to recalibrate the models, but this is something that can be done, yes. The obvious concern with introducing a calibration factor, the, the, the question that, that, that comes up is, then does the model have to be recalibrated exactly, to, exactly, to each, exactly. each, each population? And then how is, how is this model going to help me exactly. That's in, a my, very, in my yeah, clinical it, practice it, it, if, I, if I then have to, 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 to recalibrate it for, for my own patient population? So you, you did not recalibrate? No, I did not calibrate it based on the DIGS population. So the model that is presented in the paper and that was applied to the DIGS is just based on the old result. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, have any uh, recalibration. But if you look at the Framingham study, 
you're going to see that uh, it was tested in the, cardio, the cardiology framing study. So it was tested when they tested the Framingham model in other uh, patient populations, such as Asians and uh, Hispanics. They needed to recalibrate it sometimes. And they showed that for Chinese, for example, the model uh, was very poorly uh, calibrated. So they needed to recalibrate it. And what, it, what this implies is that you need to have specific models, right, for the different populations. But in this particular case, we were able to demonstrate that we did not need this recalibration. So we could use just the original model and apply that to the digs, and it performed relatively well. Now, let's, let's talk about what the predictions were that your model generated when you applied it to the verification population, to the digs population. One of the things that, that it showed was a 14% risk of conversion from ocular hypertension to glaucoma in the DIGS population. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how does that compare with the 9.5% risk that was determined from the, from the OAT study? Right. So, uh, actually, the, the observed probability identified in the study, so what was observed in our 126 patients, was 11.6%. Uh, so it's uh, similar to the 9.5% that was uh, found by the oats. And uh, the model predicted an average probability of conversion of uh, one of the models predicted 12.6% and the other model 14.3%. These being the, the full model and the... Uh, and the reduced model, yeah. So and, the reduced model predicted... Uh, predicted 12.6% average, and the full model 14.3%. So these numbers should be compared to the 11.6%, which was the uh, observed average probability of conversion in the DIGS population, right? But more important than that, because this is just an average of all the patients, more important than this is actually to look at the calibration plots, which shows how the predicted and observed probabilities agree in smaller groups of patients. So it, it looks at, uh, at quartiles of patients. So the patients are divided in, in those with, uh, that had uh, very low predicted risk, medium predicted risk, or high predicted risk. And then it sees how, actually, the predictions agree with the, what was observed in these groups of patients. Because the average... Uh, can be misleading. So that's why it's important to look at actual decalibration plots. You produced a simplified version of the of the model, one one that that would be able to be applied in the setting of the of the clinic, uh, based on a point system to emulate these these much more complicated models. Right. Uh, that, uh, at the at the start of the paper, can I have you describe the point system model? Right. So basically, the idea of developing the point system was to give a more simplified version for the clinician that he could use in, uh, in, in clinical practice to assess the risk for an individual patient. So the, the, the point system actually has seven steps, and each one of the steps from, steps, from step one to step six, you assess a particular risk factor. So for example, in step one, you assess age. And depending on the age of the patient, then you give corresponding points. So, for example, if the patient is 50 years old, then you give two points. 
And step two, then you evaluate the intraocular pressure. So if the pressure is 26, then you give three points. And in step three, then uh, corneal thickness is evaluated. And step four, the vertical cup ratio. And step five, the pattern standard deviation. And in step six, the diabetes. Uh, so you have the, all the six risk factors that are uh, presented in the formula and that were identified by the oats, evaluated in the, the, the point system. So then you add up the points that you found for each risk factor, right? And then you look in step seven, you look at the total number of points and the equivalent five-year risk of glaucoma development. This is just a way, the point system is just a simplified way of presenting the formula. It, it gives, as I showed in the paper, very close estimates to the formula. So basically what it is, is just a, a categorization of the values that were actually uh, obtained by the formula. Instead of plugging in the values in the formula and getting the final uh, estimate, you just follow the steps to get the final risk and you're going to get a very similar uh, estimate. Not all of the parameters in the point system scheme are given equal weight. And for example, your model assigns as much relative risk to the difference between a 500 micron cornea and a 560 micron cornea as it does to the difference between an intraocular pressure of 23 and an intraocular pressure of 32. Okay. So this weight, they are calculated based on the coefficients of the the formulas. So actually, the, the weights that are here for the point system are just a, a way, a representation of actually what the coefficient is for corneal thickness and what the coefficient is for age in the actual formula. And these coefficients in the formula are derived from the analysis of the oats. The oats provided what are called the hazard ratios, right, for the, the, how the risk varies for each one of these uh, factors, these variables, and you get the coefficient. So actually what this is, is just a mathematical transformation of that formula. It's just a straightforward mathematical transformation. So there's no any kind of subjective... Uh, 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 right, there, there's no... There's value judgment here. No, no, it's, there's it's, no value judgment. It's just, it's just, it's just based, a, a based simple, straightforward yeah. mathematical transformation from the form, exactly. From my standpoint, there, there are two important things to be learned from a model like this. And I want to talk about the, 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 the first one now. From my perspective, it's not important to, to me to look at an entire population and say, well, my model predicts that 14% of this population is going to convert and that in reality it's 12% it's, it's and 16%. doesn't mm -hmm. really matter. What matters to uh, me is if the model can provide me with some sort of guidance as to who I, I should treat and, and who I shouldn't. And you looked at you, – you, you provided an example of a particular cutoff to illustrate patients who – would otherwise uh, be treated for whom treatment wasn't warranted uh, and uh, patients who would not have been treated for whom treatment would, would have been warranted. Can I have you describe what that cutoff is, how it worked, and, 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 and what it showed us? Right. So the purpose of this study was to provide an estimate of the risk for untreated patients, the risk of developing glaucoma for patients if, if they're uh, left untreated in five years. 
So we didn't really evaluate particular cutoffs uh, to suggest treatment or not. We have some general guidelines that uh, were uh, reached by a consensus uh, of uh, some glaucoma experts that met to discuss potential uh, thresholds for treatment. And then they come up with they came up with some suggestions of uh, potential cutoffs. The suggestions were that for patients with uh, low risk, which would be less than five percent, we would generally not treat patients with moderate risk from five to fifteen percent. We would consider treating some selected cases, and for patients with high risk, uh, greater than fifteen percent we would generally treat most patients. But where does this uh, threshold come from? If we think about the OATS, the OATS found approximately 10% risk of glaucoma development in five years if you uh, leave the patient untreated, right? So we can consider that risk that, say, this would be the average risk of glaucoma development, right? So if you have a lower risk than that, then this would generally mean that, well, we could probably just follow you. But if your risk is higher than the average, then uh, we could argue that this is a uh, threshold high enough to uh, deserve treatment. So that's basically how it was uh, 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 developed. This is not really a, a part of the paper. I just use that as uh, an illust for illustration purpose. There are several things that need to be considered when you're actually deciding about treating or not like a, a life expectancy, if the patient is uh, the patient's commitment to treatment, uh, potential side effects of medication. So all this will have to be weighted uh, uh, when deciding to treat or not a particular individual. So for some individuals, the threshold may actually be lower. For some others, it will be higher. It will depend. What the purpose of this paper and, and this model was actually to provide a way uh, that we could integrate the risk factors to have a global uh, risk assessment for a, a particular patient that you could use along with these other things that you need to consider to better de decide for treatment or not. Because before, uh, clinicians didn't have a, an objective way of uh, integrating these risk factors, uh, integrating intraocular pressure levels, corneal thickness, uh, age, so the, the purpose of the model was to provide an objective way to integrate these factors. All the things will need to be uh, taken into account when deciding for treatment or not. So we don't intend to replace the clinical judgment. The, that will still be necessary when deciding uh, uh, for treatment or not uh, for a particular patient. As I said, from, from my standpoint, there are, there are two important things to be gained from models like this. And as I said, the, the first one is the guidance in therapy of whether to institute therapy for a particular patient. The second thing that from my perspective matters at least as much is to kind of step back and to look at the different weights for the different risk factors and ask, what does this tell us about the glaucoma pathogenic process? Right, exactly. And uh, we actually uh, uh, learned a lot from the results of the OATS in the sense that uh, although we had some evidence before of the role of corneal thickness, for example, 
only after the those results came out is that people, the, the clinicians, start to consistently uh, uh, obtain corneal thickness in their clinical practice. So we became aware of the importance of using corneal thickness, and the model actually, the predictive model, actually incorporates corneal thickness and shows to the clinicians the importance of corneal thickness. So for diabetes, for example, diabetes was a protective factor. We don't really know the reasons for that. But it shows us that it's an area that deserves further study. So we need to study, well, why diabetes could be a protective factor. And that opens the possibility for, for several studies that we're going to have to do to, to search for a possible reason why diabetes is protective and, and to justify that. So certainly it increases our awareness for uh, several risk factors that are related and also the risk factors that we actually identify as not being related to the disease. Uh, like a classic example is race. And actually African Americans, they have a higher prevalence of glaucoma. But actually, the oats didn't find them to be associated with uh, development of glaucoma. Once, and, once you controlled for for uh, yeah, for exactly other other for the other yeah, exactly yeah, correct. What do you do in your in your own practice? Do you use this um, model? Right. So uh, we applied this model to the several patients that we could uh, gather from the DIGS database, and these patients were the ones that we followed carefully that provided uh, their. Uh, consent for being included in the research, and we're now actually applying that also, and I'm applying that in the patients that we follow, follow routinely, because it, it, it's a very, uh, I find it very useful, because it's something that we know actually we can show the patient, listen, that's, that's, this is why I think you uh, should not or should be treated, because I, I see your risk here as let's say 1%, so I don't really think that you should be treated because of this, this, and that. Because before, we would just do this very uh, subjectively, and now we have a much better way of actually telling the patient, well, we now have this validated tool enables us to, to actually get the, your risk, and it's, it's, it, it actually, it's much better, I think, in terms of convincing the patient and justifying treatment or no treatment. The model is, uh, was developed to help uh, clinicians and to objectively assess all the risk factors, but it's, it's not meant to replace their uh, judgment. Thank you very much. All right, Felipe. great. That was great. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Felipe Medeiros is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of California, San Diego. His paper, Validation of a Predictive Model, to estimate the risk of conversion from ocular hypertension to glaucoma appears in the October 2005 issue of Archives of Ophthalmology. I've been asked by several listeners to create a mailing list to distribute information about upcoming programs. To keep with the podcast's interactive theme, I've set up a discussion group. By joining the group, you will get occasional emails from me describing upcoming programs, topics I'm working on, and guests I have lined up for interviews. You'll also be able to suggest papers and guests for future podcasts, and you'll be able to discuss the podcasts with other listeners. To get enrolled, click on the Contact Us button on asseenfromhere.com and indicate that you want to be enrolled in the mailing list in the message body. I will, of course, not send spam. Colon, close parentheses, Josh.
ask questions of Dr. Medeiros or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial, area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial, 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.